Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Every company has a story to tell, from the small startup to the large enterprise, and everything in between. This is one of them. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Sean, I hear the, uh, the jury's out. Yeah. On vacation, that is. <laughs> okay. I mean, there is no <laughs> process at all. There's no, no, no judgment. There's no, nobody to judge us. Yeah. It's just a, it's a free for all in, uh, in the world of technology. Free? You know, that oh. word. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different uh, context for the word is free it, there. It, is this something really ever free? Our privacy is free. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can take it wherever we want to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and use it as a, as a, as money, as an exchange <laughs> value for things that we, we do online and we do in our business, uh, that freemium economy and the fact that we think sometimes that stuff comes for free in exchange of, I don't know, your soul in a way. I know I'm going to get philosophical right I away. Know. But yeah, privacy has changed. And Let's that, put it that way. And that's certainly something for the consumers to pay attention to. And I think more people are becoming more aware of that. And True. Uh, a lot of uh, which is driven by regulation. So in Europe, there's GDPR. In California, there's CCPA, which I'm sure we'll have to spell out for folks. We'll put links to those in the, in the show notes. But we look at the look at the regulation, which has raised awareness for consumers. It's also given organizations a view for how they can take compliance with privacy laws and and boost their security. But we we know Marco that uh, privacy and compliance are not the same thing as security. There's certainly an overlap, and one leads to the other, and and back and forth. Um, but because it's a mess that we just kind of blot about here, <laughs> you can imagine what mess it is for organizations trying to do the right thing for their customers, do the right thing for the business, and then uh, keep their teams uh, operationally efficient, if you will, as they try to bridge those two things together. And so today, Marco, we're going to kick off uh, a two-part series when we're going to look at the role of privacy in the organization and how to... Uh, build a strategy to incorporate privacy as part of the organizational structure and uh, connected to security and, and of course, maintain compliance with uh, hundreds of regulations in this space, which we'll talk about. And then in the second episode, we're going to dig into more of how to operationalize that, who's involved from a team perspective, how do you take technologies and processes and automation and, and map that to your teams too. Sounds uh, like it's going to be, the, the second part is going to be more your cup of tea. That's me. That's All right. Me. Good. Yeah, I'll so drink that cup. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we have a, a, a guest that's going to share some tea with us because people, of course, are going to be like, what? Sean and Mark are going to talk about all this stuff. They don't know enough. So we brought somebody that really, really knows how to enlighten us on the topic. And Sean, I'll leave you the honor to bring uh, Kate in the picture here. Absolutely. Thrilled to have Kate on uh, from Imperva. And 
a lot of experience from many different roles in this. And uh, Kate, I'm excited to have you on the show and uh, to get your insights on privacy in, uh, in business, so looking at it from a legal perspective, operational perspective, the whole gamut. So uh, a few words from you to kind of help shape uh, our listeners' view of who you are and what you're up to and, and why this is important to you. Thank you. Thank you both so much for having me today. Um, by way of introduction, I am Kate Barecchia. I'm Deputy General Counsel here and Global Data Privacy Officer. So in my current role, I manage privacy compliance globally for Imperva. Um, so if there's a country in which we or our customers do business, it's my responsibility to have an understanding of those laws and how they impact Imperva and Imperva's customers. I started my life as an engineer. Um, so I actually have two degrees in engineering, one in electrical and one in biomedical. And um, after that, I went to law school. Then I practiced as a patent attorney for a little while, but looking at where technology was going and the world was going and you know, factoring in my own personal interest in privacy, I took a different path along the way. And I started working in privacy probably eight to 10 years ago, um, I came across it in the workplace almost by accident. I was doing predominantly litigation work, um, so claims against the company. And in that context, in that role, whenever um, something that wasn't purely a contractual issue would come up, it would come to me. So it made my work really different and exciting. And I, I started to take a deeper look at privacy and I ended up pursuing that full time as my career interest. And I have three certifications in data privacy issued by the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Um, so I have a CIPP US, a CIPPE, and a CIPM, which is the United States, Europe, and the management and design of privacy programs. Earlier this year, I was really excited and honored to be inducted as a Fellow of Information Privacy, which is a great honor um, issued by the IAPP. And I'm excited to be here today to share some of the things I've learned along the way. That's a lot of information you should have kept private because now everybody, everybody knows about it. No, joke, jokes apart. That's, that's impressive. And, uh, and I can see a lot of direction. For, for this conversation because you're covering different angles here. And, I, you know, I think that with all the podcasts, all the panel conversation we do, it's just you can't put one thing, uh, one topic in a silos and, and leave it there. And if I think that of all those that they do kind of bleed with each other and the societal aspect, the technological aspect, legal, privacy really is very complicated and i want to start with you with probably a question you had asked many times which is can we define privacy nowadays and maybe how how different is and we're talking about the business world we don't, don't need to go philosophical here compare with what it was maybe you know 10 15 years ago before social media before the way that we handle uh, data nowadays you're right Privacy can be very complicated, but I like to tackle it from a way that I hope uncomplicates it. So whenever I get asked a question like that, I go back to two fundamental principles. 
privacy is the concept of deciding who should have access to information or to something like your house, right? That's the basic concept of privacy, the should. Security is making sure that only the people you have decided should have access, have access. So if we look at that first part, who should have access to information, that should is determined in different ways in different contexts. So if you're talking about a social media platform, the should is very different. And the decider of the should is very different than if you're talking about your bank. I, I like the idea of simplifying things. Um, so the should versus uh, can and can control it. Yeah. Defining who should have access and controlling who, who can actually gain access. Um, it, it's still for me, and even just your, your role, you have, you have general counsel in your role. You have data privacy officer in your role, DPO. Uh, you come from an engineering background, uh, so we can kind of look at that from both the application development perspective and also security engineering perspective, perhaps. And so I've just mentioned four teams. And so kind of, I don't want to get into the team part yet, but when we when we look at privacy, um, we, we see all these laws and regulations from multiple countries. How do how do companies dissect those things? Maybe, or perhaps maybe we start with what are those things that we're seeing in hundred plus countries uh, who are enacting laws and, and putting policies in place? What are they? We know of the General Data Protection Regulation (GDPR) and uh, the CCPA in California. Can you maybe give us an overview of the state of things from that perspective, and then I'll move into more of the how do we dissect all of them? Because there's a lot there. Sure, definitely. So GDPR, which you mentioned, was enacted in 2018. Or I should say that's when it went live, um, for lack of a better word. It was passed sometime plus or minus 2016, and the world had about two years to get ready for it. So that law has been in effect for about five years, and today it remains what is widely considered the high watermark. Since GDPR went into effect, we've seen many um, renovations in privacy laws across the world, and those renovations come for a variety of different reasons. In some places, it's social pressures. People are dissatisfied. In other places, it's economic pressures because privacy law can often act on a business in the same way that a tariff does, because you need to, frankly, compliance can be expensive and you need to comply with those laws. So some countries are changing their laws to better align with GDPR. Um, within the United States, we don't currently have a federal landscape of data privacy. Um, we have older legacy laws on the books like Gramm-Leach-Bliley, um, Fair Credit Reporting Act. But in terms of something that would be comparable to GDPR, we don't have anything on the near-term horizon for that. So what we do have is states across the United States which are enacting their own privacy laws. Um, CCPA, which you mentioned, is the California Consumer Protection Act that went into effect in 2020. And are we 
So you mentioned multiple states. We, we, we touched on California there. Can you give us some insight into other states? Um, sure. Not necessarily name them, but and, and do we see a path toward a, a federal uh, regulation you know, on this front? Federal regulation is a great question. Um, within the past year, ca uh, Colorado, Virginia, and Connecticut also passed their own laws. Those will go into effect from memory on a sliding scale from 2023 and beyond. In terms of reaching federal legislation, I think we all would need a better crystal ball than exists today to see if we'll find consensus. Um, there are some on Capitol Hill who have expressed a belief that a federal privacy law would be a violation of the Constitution. There are others who are very much in favor of a comprehensive national privacy law. And on that point, and certainly don't want to get uh, political here, but just from a from an understanding what privacy means to businesses around the world. Um, Asian countries have different view of privacy than Western countries, for example. And so how do organizations kind of find that mix of, well, this is how I deal with customers and data in different regions, or even, even across different States, we're starting to see changes in, uh, and how they manage different laws and, and people's information. And um, so I, you mentioned GDPR as a high watermark. I've heard the, heard the comment, well, you just kind of apply GDPR and, and you're generally okay. You can just kind of follow that through with the rest of them. But if there are differences in what privacy means, uh, not, just, not, not just a high watermark, but the coloring of it, <laughs> it seems to get a little more difficult. So how, how can organizations kind of understand those differences? It, that is a very challenging task. And so when I've looked at that problem over the years, it's extremely difficult to do individualized national procedures if you are a multinational company. It inherently leads to confusion among the workforce. Because if you think about the data, um, and by that I mean the personal data you handle on an everyday basis, do you know where each person lives? For example, if you work in customer support, it's a little unfair to expect you to ascertain the residence of every person's data you're handling and apply the applicable law to that data. Right? So it leads to stress and confusion for the everyday employee. So in my experience, applying GDPR as a single global data privacy standard leads to greater consistency in the organization's handling of personal data, overall higher levels of compliance, and greater employee satisfaction because employees can have the certainty that what they're doing is the right thing. They don't just throw up their hands and say, I quit because I can't figure out what I was supposed to do 10 minutes ago and how that's different from what I'm supposed to do now. There are costs to compliance, but when you pick a single global standard, my experience is that it actually reduces those costs and has the extra benefit of meeting customer expectations. Because globally, what we hear from customers is, do you comply with GDPR? 
People aren't asking really about other laws. We have those use cases, of course, but the most common ask is for GDPR. And then in the rare case that a national deviation is needed, whether it's China or Russia for certain localization activities or Brazil where you need a, a Brazilian um, citizen as your DPO, um, you can make those local deviations. Germany, where you need a, an officially appointed data protection officer when you're a company over a certain size in that country. You know, you can manage the local deviations by training the local populations on the very tiny changes that they need to be compliant if you use GDPR as your global standard. So who decided this is what we're going to do? And that's just kind of a, a sarcastic question in a way because it seems to me that when we just jump straight into regulation, it seems like somebody at the top decided this is what privacy is, this is who should, and this is how we're going to secure it, going back to how you define it at the beginning. But the role of the, the citizen, the everyday consumer, uh, what comes first? And I, I guess how do we get to make those rules? Are we imposing this to the consumers because it's good for the business, or are we actually basing these on societal needs and cultural changes that did happen in our society because of the internet and the open communication and, and the access to data that we didn't have before the internet. So there were a lot of very great questions in what you just said. <laughs> it, many. Um, it, Pick one. one. Okay, one question I heard. <laughs> was how does an organization make the decision how they want to implement privacy? Is that a, is that a fair question? Um, I, I would say that will probably be the second level. The first one is a little bit more, I guess, philosophical and societal, meaning before we get to the company making that decision, mm. who, who do they listen from an ethical perspective, like the privacy and the ethical? There are many voices in that conversation, and I think every company is different. Um, so I'm happy to share with you that I have the personal belief that privacy is a fundamental human right. And that's something that's well established within Europe. But in the United States, culturally, it's not something that's well established by law. And so one of the things when I look at okay, what decision do I need to make or what do we need to do to comply is what would people really want? If this were my data, how would I want it to be treated? And also, what is good for our business? Sometimes doing the right thing isn't what you have to do because it's not required by law, but it's the right thing to do. And there's a lot to be gained by that, both commercially and not commercially. When people come to work and feel like they're doing good things, right? The work is better. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, from a from that ethical perspective, I, I agree. And I think there are companies that are going in the direction. Now, at the end of the day, do what which which is the driver? Is it the, the business and the return or a, a real em empathy <laughs> about doing the right things for the consumer? But I also think that in the end, if the result is it's good. Um, that's okay. I think, 
I also think it depends on which segment of the market you operate in. Um, so there are certain companies where someone like me who holds privacy as a fundamental belief cannot work, right? Mm -hmm. It would tear me mm -hmm. up every single day. Right. And in the world, we all need competing interests, right? We need somebody at the far left and somebody at the far right, pol politically or, or even just on any issue, right? If you put what the right answer should be in the middle, people got to be to the right and left of that. And that's how you get to the middle. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really, I'm not talking like um, political parties. I'm talking about view on an issue. And, and so it's important to have all of these competing interests out there because otherwise we don't arrive to the right answer. And kind of staying up at this level for another moment, uh, the, the concept of ESG and uh, environmental social governance uh, where organizations kind of at this, at the broad level are looking at how and what can we do to ensure a, a society that we want to live in for ourselves and our, and our customers. And that includes <clears throat> green energy and environmental things and uh, social contracts and things like that. I'm wondering how you view privacy fitting into that. And is there a way for organizations to take compliance and translate that and communicate that to their customers in a way that, that supports their ongoing ESG efforts? Have you seen that, actually? I do. Um, I, I actually believe um, in many ways compliance gets a bad rap, right? Because if you're an employee, compliance training can feel like punishment or an extra burden. My point of view is that maybe we'll never get to the point where compliance is totally fun, but compliance doesn't need to be a headache, right? It Compliance should be built in so seamlessly that it's just part of your everyday life. And you can go to work feeling good that you're doing the right things for the, for people, right? You're not, you're not questioning whether something is morally the right decision because you have confidence that your leadership has set an appropriate tone. I think there are certain companies, um, very large name ones, who have decided that privacy is going to be their ethos. It's part of their brand image. You see their commercials during big events. Um, I want to say I saw several during the Super Bowl last year, but I could be wrong. Um, but I came to work and said to people, you saw that commercial? There's a win in that. There's a win for the people and there's a win for the business. And, and I really do believe that that's something that's possible. And I think 10 years from now, we'll see that a lot more in the United States than we do today. And as, as leaders of organization, well, I'm, I'm actually assuming that leaders are driving this charge. <laughs> Maybe it's coming from the bottom up as well. So as I'll say the broader organization, then how, how do they begin to define their privacy posture what, what, what does that mean to them how, how do they kind of define the mission for privacy and and the objectives for that and the goals and perhaps there are some some conflicts in there as they're doing that so driving revenue keeping customers growing the, the market and uh so how, how do they how do they define a posture that supports their their business objectives yeah, in, in my experience, um, the conversation is often led by someone like me. 
someone with an understanding of the global landscape of privacy laws, where the world's likely to be in two or three years, five or six years. So if we're going to make a change, let's make a change that lasts us and not a change that solves for today where we're changing again tomorrow, because that's really expensive. It also aggravates customers. It aggravates employees, right? So let's find a holistic solution to what we can reasonably see for five to 10 years. Let's build for that and then say, look, guys, we've built for this and we're excited and we're doing the right thing. It does take executive buy-in because it, it requires um, organizational thinking. What do we do today? What, how does that have to change to be in a better place tomorrow? If we make that change, how does it affect either business operations or employees' day-to-day life or, you know, whatever the case may be, you have to evaluate the impacts. When you talk about mission statement, um, mentally, I have always struggled with that. And I think it's probably because I'm an engineer, right? So I'm like, what is the problem? What are the steps to solve the problem? Did we check back? And did we really solve the problem? And and so personally, that's probably the area where I struggle most because a mission statement is more theoretical, I would say, than I'm sometimes um, equipped for. Uh, uh, They're good a things, view, though. A view for what you want to achieve. You may not ever achieve it 100%, but it's, it's your journey, your path, yeah. Yeah, and so here we chose um, GDPR program validation as effectively a mission statement, right? That's a concrete thing I can touch and feel and say, oh, look, there that is. Um, and, and that provides us a tangible thing to measure against, right? Are we complying or are we not? Third party comes in and assesses you and says yes or no. Um, and, and so that gives us both consistency and measurability against that mission. We want to be GDPR compliant and here's something objective to say that we are. And talking about what you do and the fact that Imperva works with a lot of different industries, uh, do you see certain differences that needs to be applied because you are in an industry versus another? I'm thinking healthcare, I'm thinking government, I'm thinking um, consumer goods of a certain kind or another. Do we need to uh, balance or is there like a bullet, a silver bullet that works for everyone? Still going to put GDPR up there as a silver bullet <laughs> because if you're complying with it, you know you're complying with almost everything else. So for healthcare data in the United States, we have HIPAA. The big change from GDPR is specific contractual requirements. And that's something, you know, your most legal teams are used to handling in the ordinary course of business. You've got your business associate agreement. You're a HIPAA customer. Let's take care of it. Um, but from like a principles and processing standpoint, GDPR is going to solve for that. And while we're here, just a quick comment. Uh, many times, we, you know, compliance versus the actual solution of the problem, like really believing instead of checking the the list um what's the what's your take on that my philosophy is that really believing leads to the result that needs to happen whereas check the box compliance is viewed as abrasive and something an average employee would like to shed as quickly as possible yeah like a snake <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> or you know like like your dental cleaning no one said yes it's cleaning day right they say okay i'll go get that done nice nice because i yeah and i i'm a, i spent a lot of time looking at uh, things in healthcare and uh compliance and i i know that some healthcare providers also have they take credit card transactions so they have to be compliant with pci they may uh offer financial services and therefore have to be SOX compliant, uh, not SOC 2, but SOX compliant. They may also have to be SOC 2 to, to work with other vendors <laughs> if those vendors are asking for things. Um, and so my my question is, there, it, yes, GDPR. Let's lead with that. Set that as a high watermark. Um, we have all these other regulations and, and standards and and policies we have to follow as well a lot of it can be a burden overwhelmingly so on some companies certainly smaller organizations that may not have huge teams and may not have the opportunity to hire a dpo and an ethicist and a whoever else right um or even a cso uh, many maybe does have security managers so how uh, is there, yes, GDPR is a silver bullet to start with to, to aim as an achievement, but how do organizations kind of move from zero to that upper level? Are there ways they can kind of strategize a plan that says these are the most important things, these are the most important areas, these are the most important type of data? Um, how, do, how do teams, organizations kind of frame the beginnings uh, and a path to the, the holy grail? Sure. So if we take the data part of that question first, if you're trying to ascertain what data is most important or most vulnerable, my good friend GDPR does tell us that. It's in Article 9. And so in that article, we're talking about things like sexual orientation, health conditions, union membership. And if you're thinking about these things, you can dial back in time to World War II. And if it was something that someone might have been persecuted for during World War II, you're going to find it in Article 9. That data is entitled to additional protections. And so if you're handling that data, my recommendation, even if you're small, would be to get legal advice because the risk carried with that data is much higher for the individual and the regulatory risk of doing it incorrectly is also much higher. So the penalties will typically be much more strenuous. Um, when we talk about um, how to identify sort of major leaps to make, one of the most critical things when handling personal data is keeping it secure. Um, obviously, most days, if not every day in the news, we see information about very famous security breaches or news, newsworthy security breaches. Keeping the data secure is um, a fundamental obligation, which is set forth in Article 32 of GDPR technical and organizational measures. And protecting the data is the highest duty that most companies owe to a consumer. So you mentioned before that, and, and I who wouldn't agree, that instead of patching something just to make it look good for now, and then we will see to make a, an investment and making decision in the long run, because 
eventually um, they, they will pay um, unless many things change a lot. And what it makes me think when I, when I have those thoughts, it brings into the, my mind advanced technology, uh, artificial intelligence, bias, algorithm, and all those funny buzzwords. And sometimes they're scary and sometimes they're like, oh, they give me hope for, for the future. But what is your, um, your vision and, and, and your thinking into how we could prepare ourselves for what is coming? And I know it's a big question, <laughs> but I'm sure you have an opinion. You mean how we can prepare ourselves as consumers or how businesses should prepare for the future? Uh, let's stay on the business. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think artificial intelligence is going to continue to evolve and continue to become more prevalent because, because it's efficient. And you're also right that not every company can hire an ethicist or a formally trained data privacy officer. Um, but we all have brains and we can all think about it. And hopefully over time, we've all become more aware of hidden bias in ourselves. Um, certainly it's something I have to work on all the time, right? Because I was born with it or raised with it and I don't always recognize it. But within AI, um, what I discovered in more depth over the past year is that there's more hidden bias in some of the training sets than we might otherwise recognize. Um, so there's a relatively famous example that you all may have heard of in the healthcare context where insurance companies, health insurance, were looking to find a predictive model on when patients should be sent to the hospital or for specialist care. And what the companies found over time is that the model was not diagnostically accurate for um, the African-American population. And it turned out the reason for that was um, several different reasons, actually. The first one is the overall lower level of access to healthcare within the African-American community in the United States. The second was that African-American patients are less likely to come to the doctor until their disease has progressed or condition has progressed further, statistically speaking. And so when the African-American patients arrived, they were actually much sicker than the, than the software predicted they would be. And the insurance companies had to go back to the drawing board to better train the AI so that it could detect disease at earlier onsets which was the goal, right? The goal was to detect it very early onset so that you can um, heal the patient and from the insurance company's perspective, not pay as much in costs, but also have a healthier patient at the end of the day. Yeah, so great. It's nice to have that uh, objective and, and perhaps, well, I don't know when it was defined, but perhaps the definition of who the person was and and the attributes they were looking at were kind of contained, <laughs> if you will. Uh, but I'm looking at the world today, and, and I'm sure it's going to get even crazier in the future, where we are not just our human selves, but we are the devices we use and the apps that we run and the transactions that we uh, 
conduct and the APIs that connect those things together and the IoT sensors that show where we are and, and what time it is we're doing these things from. So we're, we're all of those things as well. So I'm wondering from a, from a future perspective in context or connection with Marco's talking about advanced technology, how, how do organizations reconcile that growth of, I'll just say all that data that it's not just my healthcare record. It's the, the surrounding metadata that defines who I am and then therefore defines what needs to be protected. So I would say the first step is to get rid of as much of that data as the organization has. So any one organization should be following the principle of data minimization. The principle of data minimization is a founding principle of almost every privacy law worldwide. And what it stands for is don't collect more than you need. So if you're a salesperson, yeah, it's great to wish your customer contact a happy birthday for their kids. But did you need that for a business purpose? No. So you shouldn't be collecting it. And sort of going on a diet, both of what we collect at the initial point and also what we retain over years. Because the less data you have, the better off you are. It's the less data you have to defend against a cyber attack. And it's the less risk to the individual on the other end of that data. So that would be the main principle I would carry as we look to move forward toward this more connected future. And uh, you, you didn't use the word, but the one that's stuck in my mind as we, as we kind of wrap here, and we're going we're gonna to leave this one for the moment, and others hopefully will join us for a follow-on conversation where we get into some of the more nitty-gritty. But the word in my mind is risk. <laughs> because what you defined to me is you didn't, you didn't take us all the way to the don't take any data, right? Because you need some. But it's, so it's not all and it's not none. So somewhere in the middle is the right amount. And that's going to change to Marco's point earlier based on industry, to your point, Kate, depending on what the outcome is you're trying to achieve and the risk involved with, uh, with doing that. So just because there is risk doesn't mean we have to accept it. Uh, there are ways to mitigate and control it. And I think we're going to get into some of that in the next episode. Yeah, and I, th I think I have a question, and maybe I'll start. I'll keep it for the next episode, and I'll start right there. So All right. I'm, what is I'm teasing here. What's the uh, where, where you drew – well, I'm not going to tell you the old question. <laughs> <laughs> it's my right of privacy here. i got to give you a tease, though, which is there are certain things where, like, when you calculate risk, the, the benefit may be worth it, that extra information that you're going to give versus other time, maybe not so much, right? Like wishing happy birthday to the kids, but other information may save your life coming in the, into the future. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna develop this question in the, in the next episode. All right, now I, now I know why you never wish me happy birthday. No, that's because I just don't have a good memory. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, enough jokes aside, this is a serious conversation and uh, I'm thrilled to have Kate on and uh, we're going to have a follow on conversation. We're going to get into more of the operational uh, aspects of this, how to engineer products in an environment that's uh, privacy aware and and doesn't compete with security, perhaps. And uh, the teams involved, the decisions need to be made and hopefully some technologies that can help uh, 
streamline and bring efficiencies to all of this stuff. So thank, uh, thanks, Kate. Any, any final words as we, as we close this episode? Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thanks everybody. There'll be links to, uh, resources in this, uh, episode show notes and, uh, links to Kate's uh, social profile. So you can, uh, get all her access all access to her uh, private information and where she works and everything <laughs> thanks guys there you go no but uh, uh seriously i think the great great insights here kate and uh, i suspect a lot of folks would want to uh, connect with you to, to get some more info from you so thanks everybody for listening and stay tuned for the next episode here on itsb magazine we hope you enjoyed this conversation if you learned something new and this story made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. <laughs>